Good morning. Good morning. Everybody doing good? Yes. It's great to see you this weekend. Thanks for being with us. I want to welcome Mobile and Foley. Thanks, guys, for being part of our weekend experience. And, you know, I'm really excited about fusion groups, almost 200 groups. And, uh, you know, we have some really unique groups. We actually we have a group uh, in Oregon. We have a group in Hattiesburg. We have a group uh, at uh, Lee University in Tennessee. And these guys, uh, a, a college group over in Pensacola, people in, uh, they're just, they're doing it. And they haven't been to our church, but we sent them, they're, they're part of our online church. They may be with us right now watching. And so they're doing this fusion group there. It's really great. In fact, we even have one group that's over on DIP. Uh, they're in a RV park. And I don't think they've ever been to Bay, but they connect every week. And uh, they're doing a fusion group with everybody in the RV park. All these guys are coming in. And so it's just phenomenal. And if you're watching, welcome. We're so proud of you, what you're doing. But uh, so uh, really, we're, we're looking forward to this semester of fusion. Before I get into the message, I want to do one more thing. Um, I want us to pray for a family. We have a family in our church, uh, the Wilkes, Matt and Fanny. They are going to China, and they're going to adopt their second child. And they'll be leaving Thursday. They'll be there for three or four weeks. And I want us to pray for them and for the child they're getting. And uh, I want us to put them on our prayer list along with the Bengals who are in Uganda right now adopting a child. Uh, I love it. I love this. It's in the spirit and the heart of a lot of people in our church. And, you know, when you reach out to an orphan, you are really tapping into the heart of God and uh, God's favor is there. So will you join me and let's, let's pray for the Wilkes. Lord, I thank you for this family. I thank you for what you put in their hearts for children. And they are stretching themselves to go and adopt another child. We pray for their safety. We pray that you order their steps, cover and protect them. We pray for their finances, their strength, their emotional uh, stability as they go through all of this and, and, and in another country. We pray, Lord, for this child's health. We understand there are some circumstances with the child that you need to touch and heal this child. So, Lord, bring them back safely and protect them in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. amen. Do that, though. Put them on your prayer list. I know they would appreciate it, and you can keep up with them and their blogs of what's going on in their world. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. I will start there. I will end in Isaiah chapter 1. All the scriptures in the middle, you just watch the screen. You won't have time to go to those. But we're going we're gonna to start the series, The Grace of God. And you know, what, what can change your life is getting a clear understanding of grace. Or let me say it this way, uh, getting a finished revelation of the work of Christ. I, I'm not sure we have that finished revelation of the work of Christ. There's so much to discover in the Word of God on this topic. You, you could spend the rest of your life in the discovery process for all that Jesus died to give us and all that Jesus died to do for us. So the Word is full of grace. God is full of grace. And it all starts, let me just point it out where it starts in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh, Jesus became flesh, and dwelt among us. He's on the earth. And we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the people on the earth, they see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, they're seeing God. And in seeing God, here's what the, the two things they saw. They saw grace and truth. That's what they picked up from Jesus, grace and truth. So I want to follow along through the scriptures. I want to show you a pattern. At the end of this message, we'll come to a conclusion. And then there's, there's a principle I want you to walk away with. The conclusion of this message, I think, will change your life. And I want you to leave with a simple, profound truth. And I'll tell you what that is in a moment. 
But in order to get there, we're going to go through a pattern. And we're, we're going to see that it exists in the Word of God. The Word is full of patterns. This is very important that we see this. And here's the pattern. We're going to see the pattern of the dwelling places of God on earth. The dwelling places of God on earth. I'm going to start in 1 Kings chapter 8. This is Solomon. He's built the temple. And then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark or the thick cloud. The presence of God's coming to the temple. For I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Drop down to verse 26. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I've built. So in this text, he's talking about the temple. And God has chosen to express his life and his presence on the earth. And, and that doesn't mean that this, this temple contain, can contain all of God in any measure. But the manifest presence of God or the real presence of God has always been part of the earth presence. So what I want to do is I want to show you four dwelling places of God. And then I'm going to show you in each one that there is a pattern. And the pattern is true in all four dwelling places. You're going to see this. But in the beginning of this message, there's something I want you to get into your mind. And we'll come back to it. That God will not live in a dirty house. I'm going to show you four dwelling places, four houses. God will not live in a dirty house. He will not live in a house tainted by sin. He, he, he can't. It's a violation of his nature. Scripture tells us that any, anything that has sin attached to it, if he brushes against it, it ceases to exist. So God can't live in a dirty house. Say it with me. God cannot live in a dirty house. Now, let's look at the first house. Here's the first one. It's God's primary house. God's primary house. It's Adam. You could call it his first house, but it's Adam. Genesis 2, 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Here's what happened. God created Adam. He created him. He designed him to be a three-room house. Adam has three rooms. He's created body, soul, and spirit. That's, that's, he's created that way. So out of the dust, God forms Adam, his body, his physical life, and then he breathed into his nostrils. And the word there in the Hebrew is the word ruach. He breathed the spirit of God, the life of God into him. And he became a spiritual being. His spirit man came alive. And then it says he became a living soul. So that means he began to live in his emotional life. Because you see your emotional life operates in your will. You are spirit, possess a soul, you live in a body. In your soulish realm is your mind and your will and your emotion. So here, here's Adam and here's the way he's starting to begin an emotional life. Now look at this scripture all the way over in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So watch, the primary house, the first house was designed with three rooms, spirit, soul, body. In the body, this is where Adam lived. He, he knew the things of the earth. He's eating from the earth, all these natural things. The soul is the psyche. This is where he knows the psychological and the emotional life begins to happen in his life. And then the spirit, this is where he knows God because he's a spirit being. He's created a spirit being after God breathed into him. And God's a spirit being. So this is where he knows God. So here's God's design. It's like this. When our body is right, I'm healthy. When my soul is right, I'm happy. When my spirit is right, I'm holy. That's God's design. 
So when everything is right with me, then I'm healthy, happy, and holy. So this was a house designed, but watch, it becomes a house. I'm showing you the pattern. Here's the first step of the pattern. It's a design. Secondly, it's a house desecrated. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband, Adam, and he ate. So when they ate, we call that sin. They rebelled against God. They sinned. They went against God. So the primary house now is designed to, by God, but then secondly, it's desecrated by sin. Adam and Eve, they desecrated by sin. He defiled the house, and as soon as the house becomes desecrated, it now becomes, here's the third step of the pattern, is desolated. And now it's des- desolated. Here's what that means. God moved out. God left the house. He, he, he leaves. He separates himself from Adam. So the primary house, God's first house, Adam, it was a house designed, desecrated, desolated. And here's the fourth step of the pattern. You're going to see this pattern through every house I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you four houses. The next step was the house is destroyed. And God destroyed the house. Genesis 2:17. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Here's what that means. Die is a spiritual death. What is spiritual death? Separation from God. God leaves. He moves out. He's, he's gone. So Adam died spiritually. And, and, and you say, well, did that happen immediately? Was that a progression in his spirit? He separated from God. So he experienced spiritual death immediately. And then he dies progressively in his soul. And then he dies ultimately in his body. You know, he lives five, six hundred years, but he dies progressively in his soul. Here's why. The spirit man dies. It's not alive. So now he's going to live life by his soulish realm. He's living it by his mind and by his emotions. And all of this realm, that's how he's living. But it progressively dies. And the word in the Hebrew, die, it means dying, you shall die. So the spirit of death came into Adam's life. And and the physical death was ultimately, it came. Spiritual death happened immediately. Listen, every person in the world today, they're in one of two places. They are either in spiritual life with God or they are spiritually dead, which means they are incapable of responding to God's spirit because the spirit man is dead, can't respond to it. That's why Paul told Timothy, a natural man does not understand the things of God. They're foolishness to him. Because, you see, to, to a person that's living by the soul, spiritual things make no sense. The, the dots do not connect. And so that's how Adam begins to live his life. So Adam died. The house is destroyed. That's the pattern. We're going to see it all through Scripture. Here's the second house. It's called God's pattern house. It's the tabernacle or the temple. The tabernacle Moses built, the temple Solomon built. They, they were built, both were built exactly according to the same pattern. Well, what's the pattern of the primary house? Three rooms. And so they, they, it, has, it has three rooms, the same pattern. I'll show you the rooms. Here's the first room. It's the outer court of the temple. And this corresponds with our body. This is, where, this is where the brazen altar is. This is where you brought the animals to sacrifice. And this is where you offered them. So how does that reflect to our bodies? Well, our bodies, are, we're, we're, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And then the second room is called the inner court. 
And, and this is, corresponds with the soul. This is the emotional part. This is where we become close and intimate with God. In that room, in the inner court, you, know, you had the candles, you had the showbread, you, you had the, 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 the altar of prayer, the golden altar of prayer. You had all this. It's, it's intimate fellowship with God. That represents our soul. That's where that takes place. And then you have the third room. It's called the innermost room or the holy of holies. That represents our spirit. This is where God dwells. This is where God dwells. The glory of God came into that temple. The glory of God came into that tabernacle in those days and, and dwelt there. And if you, if you went around to the Jewish folks in that community and said, hey, where does God live? They would point to the tabernacle. They'd point to the temple. And they say he lives right there. But don't, don't go knock on the door because you you know, you're only supposed to do that once a year. So, so the temple was a house designed by God. In fact, he told Moses and Solomon, pay attention to everything in, in the temple, the tabernacle, build it according to the pattern, even down to the priest and what they wear and what's on what they wear. And even down to the wood, even down to the tent and the size of the stakes, even down to how the wood is cut, even how the stones are cut and where they're cut and all of this thing. He just presented one major uh, object lesson, one major ob- illustration for us to see a pattern. So this temple was a house design. It becomes, here's the pattern. It becomes a house desecrated. Matthew 21, 13. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. They desecrated it. And and that's just the tip of the iceberg of what they really did in the temple. So God designed it. Man, religious leaders desecrated it. But remember the pattern. God designed it. Man desecrates it. And then what happens? It's desolated. Guess what? God moved out. He moved out of the temple. He, he, he's gone. Matthew 23, 33, 38 says, see, your house is left to you desolate. He's talking about the temple. He, he's saying, yeah, you made it a den of thieves, but he's saying, oh, by the way, it's desolate. It, oh, it's your house now. I, I'm, I'm gone. I, I, I don't live there anymore. I, I'm, I can't live in a dirty house. So here's what the Jewish people did. They went Sabbath after Sabbath to the temple, keeping a godless Sabbath and going into a godless temple. And you think about how that looks today. People who go to a godless church or a godless temple, and there's no God there, but they keep going through the motion, and God is not there. So God has left. He's not there. And, and, and they keep going. They keep having religious services, and they keep offering sacrifices. God's not there, and, and he's simply not there. And then Jesus says, listen, this is your house. This is not mine. I'm gone. So here is the pattern. Remember the pattern. So now this house is, the fourth part of the pattern is destroyed. Remember, the pattern, the pattern house is designed, desecrated, desolated, and now it's destroyed. Remember what Jesus said to the Jews one time? He said, you see these stones right here? He said, I'll tell you, there'll be not one stone upon another. He's pointing to the temple. And, 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 you know, and in A.D. 70, uh, 70 A.D., Nero comes along. He destroys this temple. And history tells us it's knocked down. There's not a stone left upon another. Jesus prophesied this, and that temple has never been rebuilt in Jerusalem yet. That's another sermon, okay? So God will not live in a dirty house. He'll not live in a desecrated house. So you have a primary house. Then you have the pattern house. But then God comes along with the perfect house. The perfect house is Jesus. John two nineteen. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, hey, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? And he answered, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So Jesus Christ is a house design. He's designed by the Father. He was a perfect house. He was perfect in his three rooms. 
He was perfect in his body. He was perfect in his soul. He was perfect in his spirit. He had no sin. He never sinned. He was perfect. So he's a house designed. But what's the pattern? The pattern is now he becomes a house desecrated. Well, how can he become desecrated if he never sinned? Well, Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he, Jesus, made himself who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what did Jesus do? He took the sins of the world upon himself. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw him, he said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So Jesus takes the sins of the world upon himself, and the perfect Lamb of God became sin that we might become something else. We who were sin, Jesus took that sin so we could become someone else. The perfect Lamb of God became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So he's a house desecrated. Well, as soon as you're a house desecrated, guess what happens in the pattern? Remember, he becomes a house desolated. Remember his prayer on the cross? Remember, remember what desolation means? God moves out. He moves out. And, and, and he cries out in, in Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, God can't live in a dirty house even if it's son, his son's house. Now, if, if God's ever been tempted to sway from or contradict his character and, and accommodate sin, this would probably have been the place because this is his only begotten son. But he doesn't do it because God cannot live in a dirty house. So watch, Jesus was not only a house designed, desecrated, and desolated, but he's also a house destroyed. We know that story because he's suspended between heaven and earth on a cross. And then the Bible says in in Matthew 27, 50, he yielded up his spirit. Here's what that means. He was spiritually, physically, and emotionally dead. All three rooms are closed. He is, he's dead. Why? God will not live in a dirty house. He's taken sin for us. You never, you'll never understand grace until you see it against the backdrop of what it costs God to get it to us. You'll never appreciate grace until you understand what it costs the Father to extend it. And you'll never see grace, full revelation, the, the fullest extent until you understand how good God is toward you and me when we don't deserve it and we can't earn it and we can't buy it. It's pure grace. But listen, God won't live in a dirty house. His perfect house is Jesus. That's the third house. Now here's the fourth house. It's his, God's permanent house. Yeah, he's got a permanent house. He has a permanent dwelling place on the earth. You, you want to see it? You're looking at it. Me and you. We're God's permanent dwelling place on the earth. That's where he's going to dwell. And, 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 and 1 Corinthians six nineteen says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? This, this is the temple. This is his permanent place. And the Holy Spirit's going to be here. And, and in John 14, 16, and Jesus said, I pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Your body, when you became a believer of Jesus Christ, your body that it became the temple of the Holy Spirit while, while you're here on this earth. And the promise is that the comforter will not leave you. He'll be with you forever. The Spirit of God will dwell and, and be in, in, you, in your house permanently. You're God's permanent house. But let's go back to the pattern. That, that's the design. That's how he designed it. God designed it for his spirit. So we've got to go back to the pattern. So we're, we're all born into a sinful nature. All of us are born. So all of us have sinned. All of us have sinned. So now this house has become desecrated. And remember what we learned. When the house becomes desecrated, God will not live in a dirty house. And so now the house is desolated. He's moved out. 
It's a desolated house. It's an empty vessel. But I'm God's permanent dwelling place on the earth. So how does this work? See, what's the conclusion? Well, here's, here's what we've learned. The truth is that God will not live in a dirty house. The truth is I'm God's permanent dwelling place. Well, if you go back to the pattern, there's a fourth part of the pattern. The fourth part of the pattern, if, you, if you've been keeping up with me, is the house is destroyed. Well, whoa, wait, 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 wait. We're talking about us now. We're destroyed? We're, we're destroyed? No, no, no. Not, not if you understand grace. That's why you need a clear understanding of the grace of God. And so here, here's what I want to show you. I want to break something down. I want to show you. I hope and pray that you capture this in your spirit. Because it's so important. I'm going to go back to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, the last part of that verse, part B. Here's what the prophet said. Though your sins are like scarlet. We're born into a sinful nature, but your sins are like scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, where does scarlet and crimson come from? Well, it came from a little insect. And when they died, they died clumped together and clustered together like locusts. And they would go in and harvest these little dead insects, and they, and they looked like berries on a holly tree. And, and so once they harvested these little insects, they would crush their bodies, and what came out of the red, out of this little insect was a red dye, and they called it crimson or scarlet. They, that's what they call it. It's crimson. Here's what the Romans would do. The Romans would take a sheep and shear it, and they would take the fresh wool from that sheep, and they would put it together in thread and make a garment. And then they would make a vat, and they would take the dye from these little insects and put it in that vat. And then they would take the wool, and they would immerse the wool in that vat, and they'd leave it overnight. They'd come back the next day, and they'd take it out, let it dry, and then they would repeat the process. That's why the word crimson means twice dipped. That's what it means. So when it was dipped twice, the dye, the color, held fast. There was no way to remove the color from the wool. Because now the, the white wool is dipped twice in the crimson, so actually the color becomes part of the wool. No one could remove the scarlet, the scarlet color from the wool. It was impossible. So how does this make sense? In the natural, it's impossible to separate those now. Well, Isaiah said, your sin is as scarlet in your spirit man. So, so picture the wool of this sheep. And that, that's, that, that, that's you. Wool represents flesh in the Bible. But let's just say this wool represents you and the sin. Well, it's, it's scarlet. It's red. And, 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 and nothing in the natural is going to get it out. No, in other words, being a good person won't get it out. Being a moral, just, honest person won't get it out. Going to church won't get it out. Being a member of a church, it, it won't get it out. The, the only thing that's going to get it out is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that's going to separate this crimson from, from the natural. So here's what the Lord does. When you go to the Lord and you repent and you confess your sins, the Lord dips your sin. He takes your wool, okay, that's red like scarlet, and he dips it in his blood. And this is all symbolism. It's not an actual literal thing, but it's symbolism. And, and, it, and it makes it, the blood of Christ, when you, when you receive Christ, it makes your wool white as snow, what does it mean? That means it restores it to the original color. If you could look at Adam and Eve when they were created in the primary house and look at their soulish realm, it, that was their original color. It was like wool that had never been stained. It's not bleached out, but, but it has this original look. It has a new creation look. It's like it's totally different. 
Adam and Eve were made white as snow on the inside when they were created, but they sinned and it turned to scarlet. So Isaiah says, well, God would wash us white as snow. What's he going to wash white as snow? My spirit man that's stained, my spirit man that's dormant, my spirit man that's not alive. So why did, watch, Isaiah use this illustration of snow? Because snow is the whitest object on the earth. It can blind you. But snow is absent of color. So snow, absent of color, here's what it looks like. Pure, fresh, and clean. So if you have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, then you are in a perpetual state of righteousness. What does that mean? That means you are in a perpetual place of being clean and accepted. So when God looks at you, he he doesn't see you as sinful. He doesn't see the stained wool. He sees the original copy, the pure original new creation. He sees you as holy. Because remember, the original design is he wants you healthy, he wants you happy, but he wants you holy. So being righteous, and here's here's what a lot of us have trouble with, being righteous isn't isn't an activity or an action that's on our part to keep us righteous. Being righteous is a state of being. Being what? Being clean is a state of being. And that's all done from God's end. We can't understand that. That's God. That's the way he works. That's his, it's, it's, it's the miracle. And, and so, you know, sometimes people, you know, they would say, well, when you teach this, I've had people say, well, you know, you share this truth, it may make people just want to run out and sin a whole bunch. But see, if you think that way, I seriously doubt you know Jesus. Because here's why. In the one whom the Spirit of God dwells, you're a new creation. You're new. You've never felt like this before. You weren't even born this way in the natural. Now you're a new creation. It goes back to the original. And did you know this? If Adam and Eve had not sinned, they they would probably still be alive today. Because it's perfection. It's pure. It's clean. It's whole. And and see, here's here's where we get off base. We, We think Jesus came to modify my behavior. If I can do this right and I get this right and I do this and I jump through the hoops, Jesus didn't come to modify your behavior. Jesus came to make you a new creation in him. And so when you accept him, when you become a believer and you repent, you commit, you, you're clean, you're new. new. New creations in Christ do not look for loopholes to see what they can get away with. You're just not going to do it. Why? Because the foundation of loving Christ, it has captured your heart. You're overwhelmed with grace because you know how you've lived. You know how you've thought. You know all the things, and you're not worthy of this. And here comes God with grace and mercy, the creator of the universe. And he says, hey, I want to dwell in your house. And you repent, and you can confess. And then he comes into your life, and and when he looks at you, he sees like the righteousness of his son. It's amazing. It's just amazing grace. It It makes no sense in the natural. It's not going to make any sense in the natural. If you're listening to it through the soulish realm, it's not going to make sense. But if you get the grace of God, (coughs) the finished work of Christ, and you begin to believe it and live in it and walk in it, you'll never lack for passion for Christ again. Because it's just like singing the old song, the amazing grace, the hymn. It takes you back in your mind and you remember when you came to him. You remember before you came to him. You remember the grace and the mercy and the protection and the love. You remember how kind and gentle and gracious he was. You remember what he did for you. And that passion in you is rekindled, it's restirred, and it should be. But here's what I want you to take away from this message. Four words. I am not dirty. That's what I want you to take away. Let me put it in another sense. It's not that I'm clean, but I'm not dirty. It's not that I'm perfect, but I'm not dirty. So what is the conclusion that we've come to? 
God will not live in a dirty house or he will not dwell in a dirty dwelling place. And I am God's permanent dwelling place on the earth. And what I want you to walk away is with is I'm not dirty. I, I, I can have a dirty thought, but I'm not dirty. I, I, I can do a dirty deed, but that doesn't make me evil. I, I can make a mistake, but that doesn't make me a mistake. Because God fixed you so he could live in you forever and will not live in a dirty house. And, and so I'm fixed forever as clean. It's almost beyond my belief and understand. It's almost too good to be true that I'm not dirty. But now, here's the part I want to talk about. I, w- I want to close with this. I want to talk about repentance. Okay? Because this is where some people, th- th- there's teaching on this that kind of go one way and it goes the other. So I want to give it to you in, in the wholeness of it. Repentance and confession are not the same thing. Repentance and confession are not the same thing. Repentance includes confession, but you can confess your sins and not repent. You you can say, yeah, I did that. I said that. Yeah, I I did that. I'm sorry, but but you're not really repentant. You're kind of sorry you got caught. Oh, yeah, that's the proper thing to say. Yeah, okay, I said it. I did it. I'm sorry. The teachings on repentance today, they're wrong. I'll, I'll explain them to you in just a minute. But let's look at the word repent. The word repent is a Greek word, metanoia, and it comes from two root words, meta, which means change, noia, which means the mind. So the, the, the Greek word for repent means you change your mind. You change your mind. A lot have been taught repent means to turn and go the other way. Turn and go the other way. Now, now so, and, and that, that is true when you come out of sin and you come into Christ. You, 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 you just, you changed your mind about sin you changed your mind about yourself, and you want God. You want everything God's created you to be. But you, you also change your mind about God. If you have, if you understand grace, that God's not mad and walking around heaven with a big stick, and every time you mess up, He's going to bop you in the head and send you to time out. That, that that's the mindset. So here's what you have to do: you have to continue to change the way you think. It's not a one-time experience. You continue to change the way you think. That's the process that every believer continues in. So what does that mean? That means in a believer, you continue to repent from the day you get saved. That's the process. But see, that's where Romans comes in. Romans 12 says, renew your mind. What does that mean? Change your mind. That's part of the growth process. It doesn't happen. It's a lifetime experience. So some of the teachings are really good on grace, but they go too far and they say, well, once a, once a Christian is saved, you never have to repent again. Well, and the reason they think that is because in error, they've been taught that repent means just turn and go the other way. Well, well, you know, they think the word repent means just turn from your sin, go the other way. Well, repent includes that if you're in sin and if you're in sin and change your mind about your sin, then you would turn from your sin and go the other way. But what if you're not in sin? What if you're a believer and you sin? You're not in sin. You've been born again, but you, you make a mistake. You sin and you, you, and you change your mind. What do you need to do? You need to continually change your mind. See, if I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's here and, and I'm a believer and I do something wrong, the Holy Spirit's knocking from the inside out saying, oh, that's not right. Oh, shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have done that. Do this. So what do I do? I repent. I repent. I, 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 I repent. Why? I'm changing my mind. It's a process. I want to grow. I want to grow. So I'm going to repent. If, if Christians don't need to repent, then Jesus used the wrong word in speaking to five of the seven churches in Asia Minor. He, he, he said to five of the seven churches, churches represent believers, right? Five of the seven, he says, repent, repent, repent. What's he saying to them? 
Is he saying come out of sin, that they're in sin? No, they're believers. They've come out of sin. But what do they need to do? They need to change their mind. There are errors that you're thinking, errors that you're living, things that you're doing. They're wrong. Change your mind. We need to change our mind about sin. That's what he's saying. Now watch. Jesus never used the word grace. He taught it by the way he lived it. The Bible doesn't give us a one-statement definition. And so the best way to understand grace is to look at the old Hebrew word for grace, to look at the meaning of that word. And the meaning of that word means to bend or to stoop. So here's the God of the universe who wants to dwell here, and he will bend and stoop and offer us his touch of grace on our lives. Here, here, here's the best illustration that I could think of to use. We, we know, uh, you know, across the pond in England, there's a royal family. And, and, and we know that the royal family usually will make the news when they stop and kneel down and touch or bless a commoner. We've seen it in the past. That's grace. Because there's nothing in the commoner deserves being noticed or touched or blessed by the royal family. But because of grace in that person, in the heart of that person, there is a desire to stop, pause, and touch, and bless. Well, to show grace is to extend favor of kindness to one who doesn't deserve it, and you can't earn it. My question, my challenge is this, as I wrap this up, is this. Have you been touched by the grace of God? Have you been touched? Did, did you just recite a prayer in your head and, and, and you just went through it and you're still struggling with all of these issues and you've never experienced grace? Because if you don't experience grace, here's what happens. It, it makes the things in life that break down and you go through, it makes it hard to get through them. Because it's all about performance. It's all about do this. It's like you're trying to do church. You're trying to live for God, but God's not there. It, it, it makes no sense. And so if we're his dwelling place, how, how did he get? He, he extends mercy and grace to us. His spirit lives here. And so what I need is I need to be touched by grace so that I have an understanding. I have an understanding. As a believer, I've come out of sin. I'm a believer. But guess what? I'm not perfect. And he knows it. And I'm not going to be perfect. And he knows it. So what does he do? That grace, every time I, listen, every time I come to him and I'm repenting, when he looks at me, he, he, he looks at the righteousness of Christ in me. He looks at that wool that has been, that has been cleaned, that, that, the, that the scarlet sin is removed from. It's gone and it's white. It's like the, when he looks at me, it's like looking at the original copy back in Adam. It's not looking at the behavior, but what do I need to do? I need to be sensitive to the spirit talking to me on the inside and saying, wrong thing, shouldn't have said that, gone there, done that, all this. And then I need to repent. So in my mind, if I think, well, I repented one time, that's it, I'm done, I got it, I'm okay. No, you, you, you can't live it that way. It won't work that way because God cannot stay in a house where sin is residing. And that's why he's given us grace. And that grace is, and listen, and sometimes that spirit that's convicting us, sometimes it's a day, sometimes it's a minute, sometimes it's a week before it gets through and we listen, okay? But I'm telling you, every time you listen and every time you repent, here's what's happening. It's like God is, the God of the universe is walking by and stooping down. 
Even though he knows what you did and how he's stooping down and he's touching you and blessing you. And he, you didn't deserve it and you didn't earn it and you couldn't buy it and you're not perfect. But guess what he's doing? He's God and he's full of grace and mercy and he extends it to his children. Why? Because he wants to dwell in this house and he doesn't want you living under guilt and condemnation. He doesn't want you beating yourself up. He doesn't want you living your life without his presence in your life. He doesn't want you going through that. And a lot of us have such a misunderstanding about this that we're don't, we, we, some don't even enjoy the Christian walk because of their lack of understanding of grace. Some don't enjoy the journey of the Christian life because you have not been touched by grace. Are you breathing? So here's my challenge. Because I'm going to pray for you in just a minute. But here's my challenge. Have you been touched by grace? Do you know you're not dirty? Yeah, but I said this yesterday. God's looking at you. You're not dirty. You can still approach him. That's grace. But what does he expect you to do? He expects you to repent. Change your mind. Change your mind. That's how we learn. That's how we mature. That's how we grow. We change our mind. Okay, I, I got to stop doing that. I got to quit saying that. I got to get in control of my temper. I got to control lust. I got to control this. I got to do that. How do I do that? Through the word. Through being discipled through the word. Learning the word. Devouring the word. Letting the presence of God help me. I, and it's a process. That is a loving, graceful God that does not kick us to the curb and keep us in time out all the time. That is a loving father that doesn't base his love on us performing, but he bases his love for us unconditional because we're created in his image and he wants us to live and think like the original pattern of Adam so that we can fulfill what Adam was called to fulfill. Are you understanding the words coming out of my mouth? Because we are Adam. We are humankind. And I'm telling you, what he has for us, all of us, all of us, is beyond our imagination. But you can't get there without grace. You can't do it up here. You just can't do it. It won't work. But you to just bow your heads. I want to lead this in a prayer. And I want everybody in this room to pray this prayer out loud with me. And I want to tell you, if you realize that you haven't experienced the true grace, if you realize that I'm missing something here, and you, this, this prayer is for you. And we'll extend more prayer to you at the end of the service. Pray this with me. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending your son to die for my sins. And today I repent. And I confess my sins. And I ask you to be the Lord of my life. I ask you to extend grace to me. I ask you to take my sin-stained wool and dip it in your blood and separate it and let me be back to the original pattern, a new creation. I receive your grace. Touch me completely by your grace so I can fulfill your desires, your dreams for my life. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. God bless you.